Good evening, everyone. So we'll start with our motivation and goals. So we're turning our mind again, as we have the last three weeks, to Bodhicitta, this magnificent awakening mind that arises um, on the basis of great compassion. And in order to have that vast great compassion to arise, we need two things. One is the understanding, the recognition, the deep appreciation for the suffering of others. And the other is the recognition and deep appreciation for their kindness. Not just occasional, not just one or two or a few, but really thinking deeply that everything we know, everything we have, everything we use, our spiritual practice, our cultivation of spiritual qualities, every bit of it is dependent on the kindness of other beings. And then to recognize the suffering of those beings, we have to really look at our own. We have to really be deeply aware of our own condition. And if we look at the things we obsess about, the things that capture our mind, what are we thinking about all day? Oh, she said this to me. Why'd she say that? He didn't smile at me. What's going on? This person told me they'd have something done and they didn't. What's wrong with them? We're just obsessing moment by moment by moment on the things that seem to go wrong, the way people um, don't do what we expect or what we want. And what trips us up is this obsession with me. They weren't nice to me. They corrected me. They didn't deliver what they said to me. Over and over and over and over, it's the obsession with me that keeps us, our mind, actually unable to really see the kindness of others. And because we're so focused on ourselves and not looking at what's the cause of this kind of self-grasping and self-centeredness, we miss that everybody is suffering from the same thing. So amazingly, we in this room, we watching this video, have had an opportunity to learn that there's another way of thinking. We've had an opportunity to actually hear teachings on the value of cultivating a great compassion based on the kindness of others, based on seeing their suffering, and based on um, recognizing our own. And so to take advantage of that opportunity, to um, look at the qualities that we so admire of bodhicitta and really connect the dot between the opportunity to uh, receive teachings and then to know how to practice 
we can make a determination for this session to hear and think and then meditate again and again and again on the steps to develop our bodhicitta. To develop such an appreciation for the kindness of others and such a recognition of our own and their suffering that we are propelled to make the decision. I will, by myself alone, make the decision to liberate every living being, whatever it takes, however long it takes, I'll become a Buddha to do that. So seizing this moment, this opportunity, would set that motivation. So we're equalizing and exchanging self and others. Or if we're not, we aspire to. And if we don't aspire to, we at least might have thought about it. <laughs> um, and so last week, um, well, just to review. So this is the, one of the methods for developing bodhicitta that's taught after the seven-point cause and effect instruction. This one comes to us um, from the Buddha, from Nagarjuna. Shantideva describes it. And it's um, really um, a vast, vast practice that uh, sits within the whole context of the um, thought training teachings and uh, has within it some really profound um, and challenging points. Um, The method is five main points. First, equalizing self and others where we train ourselves to look beyond the superficial differences between ourselves and others and recognize that we are the same. The same in wanting happiness, the same in wanting to be free of any suffering, and the same in being bereft of happiness because we're all under the influence of ignorance and the afflictive emotions that arise out of that and then the karma that we create based on that. We all have this exactly the same. So recognizing this and then um, seeing that those very things, that that ignorance that we all have in common gives rise to the self-centered thought, we um, move towards exchanging self and others by first examining the faults of the self-centered thought meditating on the advance or the disadvantages of it, meditating on the advantages of cherishing others, then doing the practicings of the, with the mind of exchanging self and others, which leads us to the taking and giving practice, and this gives rise to the altruistic intention of bodhicitta. So we talked a lot last week about equalizing self and others, so I'll just um, quickly review this quote from, this is actually from, not from Shantideva's uh, Guide to Bodhisattva's Way of Life, but Compendium of Trainings, where he says, by becoming accustomed to the equality of self and other, the altruistic intention becomes firm. Self and other are interdependent, like this side and the other side of a river. 
they are false. The other bank is not in itself other. In relationship to someone else, it is this bank. Similarly, self does not exist in its own right. In relation to someone else, it is other. So equalizing, not just equalizing like we do with the seven-point cause and effect, where we're equalizing our um, open-hearted concern for people that we generally see as friends, enemies, and strangers, sort of seeing how those things are merely labeled, those labels are really changeable, that they don't exist inherently. But we're trying to, to go another step further and see also that this label of self and other do not exist inherently. And this is really hard. We're so, um, I mean, we're so identified with this body, for example. This body is me. And if it's not me, then it's mine. At the very least, it is mine. This mind I have is me. Or it's my mind. It is not other. It's mine. <laughs> Completely, solely mine. And this idea that there is a owner who possesses these things is the force of habit arising out of our ignorance since the beginning of time. So to kind of loosen that up a little bit and look at your body and think, that's mine? And it's not that that's mine, but that the body and mind are merely labeled. Merely labeled. And so, you know, this takes a tremendous amount of... Um, Reflection again, 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 because our habit is that I am me, this is mine, and that's why dying is so painful, because it all dissolves at the point of death when the mind and the body separate. And the continuity of the physical matter of the body becomes a corpse and then becomes a pile of ashes or worm food. The mind continues continuity of consciousness continues and acquires a whole new set of aggregates. But these aggregates we identify so strongly as our own, that's why this is so hard. But, you know, one of the reasonings is, that we didn't talk about last week, is that there is only uh, one of me, seven billion of you. I should equalize... Democratically speaking, your happiness is more important than mine as we get to the equalizing self and others. And so um, Shanti Davis says, hence, looking at how these labels are work, hence I should dispel the misery of others because it is suffering just like my own. We are e completely equal in that way. And I should benefit others because they are sentient beings just like myself. So that's where we spent most of the time last week looking at um, this equalizing thing. So what is the obstacle to putting others' happiness above our own? Or even thinking it's equal, actually. What's the obstacle? It's 
self-centered thought. Geshe Jambi Tegchak says, self-preoccupation creates all suffering and all causes of suffering. That's a very strong statement. Self-preoccupation creates all suffering and all causes of suffering. Do we believe this? I mean, we naturally, it's, a, it's innate that we put the center, the I, as the center of our lives, as the most important thing. It is perfectly normal. Society says it's perfectly normal. Society encourages us to do that. Every man or woman for himself. God takes care of those who take care of themselves. You know, we have, um, you know, we, we admire people who get ahead and strive and work for their own happiness. And especially in this country, really. People who pull themselves up by their own bootstraps all by themselves, single-handedly, without an assistant from anybody in the whole planet. I don't know who that is, but we have this as a value. So this equalizing, exchanging self and others is a skillful way of reversing this habit. That's what it's really all about, is changing this habit. So it's important, I think, to really um, know what self-centered is, set of self-centeredness is, and to be able to... um, Separate it out, because I think, yeah, unless we spend a lot of time really looking, it's easy to to get, um, I find, it's easy to get down in our whole selves. But we, our self-centered thought and our self are not the same. We are not innately bad people. We are not innately selfish people. We are not... um, uh, it's not that we're overcome, that this can't be overcome. It can't. It will be slow. It will take a long time, but um, it's doable. So it's important to know that self-centeredness and self-grasping ignorance are related, but they are not the same thing. This is from Geshe Jhampa Tekchup. So self-grasping which is also called the conception of true existence or ignorance itself, is the attitude that upon conceiving these aggregates, body, speech, and mind, which appear to be truly existent, it apprehends them to be truly existent. And so there is this conception of a self, running the show, calling the shots, owner of body and mind. (laughs) On the basis of grasping at that conception of this inherently existent self, then comes the mind that um, wishes to protect, (laughs) defend, and consider this self to be the most important of all. So one follows the other. First there's the self-grasping ignorance and the self-centeredness arises in relationship right behind it. Minimal Children characterizes it as the minister to um, self-grasping ignorance. Inseparable. Self-grasping is the king. 
the absolute root of our psychic existence, but the self-centeredness comes right behind it and protects and takes care of everything. Due to self-centeredness, we are attached to our side. We want to protect our body, our possessions, our friends and relatives. We have hatred for the other side. Anger towards anything that interferes with our happiness. It's true. That part is completely true. I think we can just even superficially look at our day and acknowledge that if anything is in the way of my happiness, anger arises. People don't do what I want them to do, anger arises. People say something I don't want to hear, anger arises. It's boom, boom, boom. That's our self-cherishing thought, protecting, exaggerating the negativity of that external object. So in this way, he says, all the various types of disturbing attitudes arise, we accumulate karma, and we suffer. Round and round and round and round and round. (laughs) And round endlessly, we do this, have done this, will do this until we decide to take the steps to change it. <sighs> yes, Itachi Staring says, since beginning this time, we follow the self-centered thought around like following a dictator. And it's true. It's completely true. For what? We are thirsty, it gives us salt water. We want satisfaction, it gives us a dash of fleeting pleasure and leaves us wanting more. He has a very, Geshe Tanshi Sering has a very nice analogy. He says, having spent a lifetime with self-centered thought, it can be very frightening to contemplate separating from it, of course. But it's like being in an abusive relationship. It's so familiar. We know it hurts us after a certain point. We start to recognize and notice this is harmful. It's really not good for us. And yet, like a codependent relationship, we can't get out. He says we embrace it like a lover. Because we've been trusting it forever. It's just whispering in our ears saying, I'll make you happy. I'll make you happy. I'll make you happy. So we have to look. I mean, we have to look again and again and again and again. Is this true? Does it make you happy? I will love you forever. I will make you happy. Does it? So we have to prove it to ourselves. Personally, I've just found, like, in practicing Dharma over the years, that all of these points, I have to prove to myself that the Buddha was telling the truth. And we prove to ourselves that the Buddha was telling the truth by meditating on the outlines as they, you know, they've been out. But we have to prove to ourselves that this is true, that this self-cherishing thought is a problem. And we have to do it over and over and over. It takes a long time, like lifetimes, but starting now, or picking up where we left off, will get us further down the road. So this is why we start the next two steps of um, equalizing, exchanging self and others, or uh, meditating on the disadvantages of self-centeredness, and then meditating on the advantages of cherishing others.
so that we just get familiar with a different way of thinking. The purpose, Geshe Tekchuk says, to make ourselves thoroughly dislike the self-centered thought and want to get rid of it. Because right now, we don't want to get rid of it. I mean, we, we've heard it's bad. <laughs> so, yeah, we're kind of interested. But, you know, we don't... I don't know, maybe you do. But this really strong conviction about getting rid of it, um, it's getting stronger. But it's not, like, phew, imperative yet, in my mind. So, again, it's very important to recognize that we are not our self-centered attitude. It is an attitude, Venerable Children says, that clouds the pure nature of our mind. So instead of getting caught up and feeling guilty about being selfish, which we can easily do, why? Because our self-centered attitude is going to turn this little teaching into its own tool and uh, abuse us, just like it has before. So we need to really um, recognize that although the self-centered attitude pretends to be looking out for our welfare, it is actually not. It's the cause of all of our conflict and pain. And that's why we meditate on the disadvantages. So, what are the disadvantages of the self-centered attitude? Harm people or harm living beings we harm living beings because of it. Yeah. Self protection. Out of self protection. Yeah. What else? People don't like being around us. <laughs> it's true. People don't like being around us when the self centered thought is at work. That's true. That's true. Someone's defending itself. Always defending itself. Yes. Oversensitive. That one's really good. Actually, that one's really all of our sensitivity, all of our hurt feelings, all of our <laughs> that's really self centered attitude. Can we find that though? Can we look and see that? Yeah, not in the moment, not in the moment. but um, also, you know, when it's up, I'm pretty miserable myself. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I don't always notice. Yeah, so when it's up, you're miserable. Yeah. Just you're feeling bad, but you don't always yeah. notice that it's a self-centered thought. Yeah. Are well, you too busy blaming, or just don't just don't catch it? It's just habitual, mm-hmm. so I don't notice. Jeez, this is miserable. <laughs> it's just a habit to be miserable. <laughs> Maybe. You know, you're blaming someone. It's the habit. Yeah. But you're not noticing you're miserable. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So blaming someone is the habit, but not noticing that oneself is miserable. Yeah. That's a and, and that's a self-centered a function of the self-centered thought. Or an effect of the self-centered thought. It also, um, it totally uh, it, well, it like it can convince us that we have enemies, that people are enemies of ours. Yeah. And it can totally um, obstruct our ability to connect with people. Yeah. So it convinces us that we have enemies, and then obstructs our um, capacity or ability to connect with people. Yeah, it's true. Completely true. 
can convince us to do non-virtuous actions. It definitely convinces us to do non-virtuous actions. Doesn't take much. No. No. Easily. Easily. It's the basis of all fear. Isn't that an interesting thought? As much anxiety as society has, as much anxiety as I have, fearful about this, fearful about that, self-centeredness is the basis of all fear. That's worth a winter retreat of reflection. Really, this is, this is a disadvantage, self-centered thought. It's behind every conflict between sentient beings. Every single personal negative interaction, international negative actions, planetary war, <laughs> were there to be such a thing, all propelled by the self-centered thought. In, um, when I was teaching on uh, Mind training like rays of the sun, Nam Kapel says, essentially, if all the Buddhas of the three times were to teach for eons, okay, all the Buddhas of the three times were to teach for eons about the disadvantages of the disturbing emotions that arise out of the self-centered attitude, they would never end. <laughs> If Buddhas were going to teach about the disadvantages of the disturbing attitudes that arise from the self-centered attitude, they would never end. That is an amazing idea. That's how bad it is, as far as being the demon that causes all our suffering. How is it? I mean, you know, we fall down and break our elbow today. How is that the self-centered thought? Because sometime in the past, we harmed some other living being propelled by that self-centered thought and that karma is ripening now. Karma is ripening now. So no matter what we're experiencing, whether we're, we're creating it right now, that in the moment we're reacting to something and our, our um, negative emotions arise and we create a whole other scene, or whether we're simply experiencing, quote, simply experiencing um, sickness, or um, we're getting criticized, or you know, like all the all the ripening things from our past actions, all of that is propelled by self-centered thought. Self-centered thought now, self-centered thought in the past. Yeah. So, you know, all of the, t the, the um, so many of the thought training texts, I cut out some of these quotes, but they talk about the demon, the great monstrous demon of selfishness. The butcher, the butcher, the thief, the liar. The liar is the one we can really catch and see. That is a lie. <laughs> when we tell ourselves how terrible we are. When the self-centered thought gets into gear and decides it's time for us to hate ourselves. You know, to be able to... What a, what a liar. But we believe it. 
and embrace it like a lover. That is such a great image of how how dysfunctional this relationship is between this aspect of our mind. And the trick is, it's a little bit like, um, you know, there's, in terms of addictions, there are substance addictions of many, many kinds, but I, this is not psychologically tested, but I do believe that food addiction has got to be one of the worst because you can separate from the alcohol, you can separate from the, um, um, from the drug, but you cannot separate from the food. And to me, this is a little bit like that because the self-centered thought is not who we are, but it does exist or does arise within our mind stream. And so it's not that our enemy is the mind, but the self-centered thought is in the mind. And so it's a more delicate removal operation than I knew, maybe than I know even now, but having smashed it a few times, I mean, having really worked at smashing it a few times, without the subtlety, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. That being more precise about what it is, how it works, and then being much more um, careful with um, its antidotes, I think, must be more effective. In fact, I know that's true. I know that's true. And one of the things is advantage, it is meditating on the disadvantages again and again and again and again and again, as opposed to just trying to smash it. What does that do? Makes you feel bad. <laughs> yeah, makes you feel bad. So this list of um, disadvantages is good. But Venerable Children and actually several teachers actually recommend more than looking at the list, we sit down and think about our lives. Think about the difficult relationships. Think about the difficult situations. What kind of hardships and, you know, the hard spots in our whole life. And look, what is underneath that? What's really the cause? Not the other person we now know. And not the universe. Can we find where the self it's the self-centeredness itself, that self-preoccupation that led to the difficulty? And when we apply it to our own lives, when we start to see like this is really this is really the cause of why I experienced that then it becomes very real. The list is pretty tidy. Breeds satisfaction. It's impossible to satisfy the bottomless pit of our desires. Well, if we really look at the bottomless pit of our desires, that gets a lot more real <laughs> than we're running through the list in meditation in the morning. The first one on Lama Tsongkhapa's list is it impedes our spiritual progress and prevents our enlightenment. It prevents our entry into the Mahayana path. It absolutely is the biggest obstacle to our spiritual practice. Absolutely. So, the conclusion of that meditation is to determine, is to see it as our enemy, 
and to determine not to fall under its sway. Okay, we declare war on the self-centered thought. And then we spend some time meditating on the advantages of cherishing others. This famous quote that Shatideva, whatever worldly joy there is arises from wishing for others' happiness. Do we believe that? No. No. Here's what he said. Whatever worldly joy there is arises from wishing for others' happiness. Whatever worldly suffering there is arises from wishing for your own happiness. Ordinary persons act for their own welfare. The sage acts for others' welfare. What need is there to say more? Look at the difference between these two. What need is there to say more? Whatever worldly joy there is arises from wishing for others' happiness. As you jump text it says, Why should we view other sentient beings as important? Because everything good and excellent both temporary and ultimate, is completely dependent on sentient beings. How is that? How is that? Well, it's looking at a lot about the kinds of others, and of course the whole thing about, you know, if we're going to get all those good qualities that we need to have, who do we have the relationship to to cultivate them in front? We can't do it, you know, look at a mirror that's right. So we have to have somebody to develop patience with. We have to have somebody to develop love for. Venerable Sim K said we can't just look in the mirror and say, Oh, you're so great, Sim K, and have that be enough. No. Every single thing, every single good quality is dependent on, on them. Out depending on each and every sentient being from the smallest insect to the magnificent beings of the God realms, it is impossible for us to attain enlightenment. This is just as hard. Thinking that our happiness is dependent on sentient beings is just as hard as thinking that our suffering comes from our own self-centered thought. And yet, you know, Geshe staring says, you know, partly it's because we, this self-centeredness is all we know. We don't really know that our happiness is dependent on others. But also, in every one of our lives, we probably can recall some instances when we just spontaneously offered gave, helped, without any regard for return, without any selfish desire whatsoever, but just spontaneously gave. And how much joy came from that. 
we probably can count them on our our one hand, or maybe do, for many of us. But we have had that experience in our lives. In fact, there was a person here for the Sharing the Dharma Day the other day who shared a beautiful story. We were talking about what kind of rituals that had brought um, fulfillment or whatever the question was. And she had not had a very happy relationship with her religion of origin. But what she remembered was somehow this habit that she'd heard about somewhere of doing kind things for people without them knowing. Yeah, without telling anybody. Without telling anybody, but not especially the person that, that was she was being kind for. And and she said, nobody told me how much joy I would get from doing that. That was a totally joyful experience for her. It was a beautiful, vivid realization. Uh, I mean, illustration of how um, cherishing others brings us happiness. She, her face just lit up as she was having the memory and told the story. It was so beautiful. We all have some out like that. So it, it is the seed. It is the seed. So there's also a list, of course, of, of the advantages of cherishing others. When we cherish them, they are happy. <laughs> when they are happy, we're in a happier environment. <laughs> we take care of others, they will be happier. Not taking care of them out of a wish for them to like us. This is tricky. Not trying to take care of people so that they won't be mad at us. But genuinely, genuinely wishing to benefit them. Out of appreciation for their kindness. Appreciation for their kindness. That's why this meditation on the kindness of others is so important. So important. Our lives become meaningful when we cherish others. We can be happy anywhere, anytime, no matter who we're with. That's a sweet advantage. The more we learn to cherish others, then everybody's our best friend. I mean, His Holiness is such a, a perfect example of this. When His Holiness the Dalai Lama walks onto a stage, 24,000 people you can barely see him. He's a teeny little speck. Speck, and he walks out, and he does this to the audience, and you just melt. People's hearts open. Why? Because he's genuinely cherishing every single being in that space and beyond, probably. But that's the experience with him. So, if we need a role model in the world. It's His Holiness for that very thing. So, okay. We spend a lot of time, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of time advantage, uh, meditating on the disadvantages of the self-centered thought. Meditating on the advantages of cherishing others. Oh, we create great merit. That's a very important advantage to bring to mind. We create huge amounts of merit. which helps us to progress along the path. 
So that takes us then to the practice of exchanging self and others. Which does not mean then I go slip into your body and possess you, but that I gradually learn to hold everyone's happiness in higher regard than my own. You know, these are laid out sequentially, but the more I've studied them, the more I realize that they all have to be practiced kind of simultaneously. I'm sure there's a sequential order, but um, we can't... I mean, we can practice um, holding others' happiness higher than our own way before we have a big handle on the advantages of cherishing others and the disadvantages of the self-centered thought, right? I mean, as Venerable Children has said, if we should at least once every day, at the end of the day, we should know that we worked consciously to overcome the self-centered thought at least one time. At least one time. At least sometime every day we can do something we don't want to do to make somebody happy. We can, um, you know, I, I really think that this is the key to Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, this idea that um, we give, that we want to give because we want to make other people happy. That it's natural, innate. And that when we have the opportunity to give, we will. And so we can be more mindful, we can be more conscious about overcoming our own self-centeredness and exchanging our happiness for others in this way. Geshe Tashi Sering suggests an experiment, just to, which I think is interesting. He said, just pick a day and deliberately do everything with a self-centered attitude. I know, I can't even imagine doing it, but then I need to be liked too much. <laughs> But he's just, just do it. Pick a day and do it, and see what your what people, how your people respond to you. See how your own mind gets tight. But you know, it's like exaggerating. And then pick a day where you spend the whole twenty-four hour period, to the best of your ability, holding um, others' happiness is more important than your own, and compare the two. And he said, if you can't see a difference in a day, then do it for each for a week. <laughs> no, I couldn't imagine. First, throw you out of the house. You know how to do that. Really easy. But the point is to bring our attention to it. We do it on automatic all the time. But this is like to bring our attention to it. Because, I mean, and we also have to be realistic about how much we can do. We are changing the patterns of... Lifetimes, 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 lifetimes. But if we don't start it now, where will we end up? Where we've always been. So that's our opportunity right now, is to really practice now. And then this prayer from the um, Guru Puja, this chronic disease of cherishing ourselves is the cause giving rise to our unsought suffering. Perceiving this, we seek your blessing to blame begrudge and destroy this monstrous demon of selfishness. So then that's where the taking and giving 
meditation comes in. The Tonglen practice. Um, Tong in Tibetan, to give, Len to take. Although it's named Tonglen, we actually practice it by taking and giving. Where we train in really happily taking on the dukkha of others that others don't want and using it to destroy what we don't want which is our own ignorance and our own self-centeredness. And then we practice joyfully transforming our body, our possessions, and our virtue into whatever other people want or need and give it with delight, without any hesitation or miserliness. So that's the ideal in this practice. What we're doing, as His Holiness talks about, recommends, that we're using the faculty of imagination to strengthen our mind and to change our habits. Venerable Children listed a whole bunch of reasons why to do this practice. One of them is that it profoundly challenges our usual view. We know that. The point is to be willing to give to benefit all sentient beings because we have a strong altruistic attitude and we see self-centeredness as the obstacle to our attaining our goal. So, you know, the more we hold, I think it's true, the more we hold our aspiration to develop bodhicitta really present in our mind, it's like the, the beautiful, shining example of what we can do to achieve our potential. It is inspiring. And so we do this taking and giving practice to change the habit that prevents us from being able to love and have compassion for every being equally. That's the point. Imagining doing this makes us strong enough to reach out and help others and sets the stage for becoming Arya Bodhisattvas so that we can really practice for the benefit of sentient beings. Also, doing this practice, because we need to accumulate the two collections of merit and wisdom, which create the causes for the um, form and the truth bodies of the Buddha, because we really want this full enlightenment, then we practice giving in this meditation to help um, accumulate the, the merit that we need. So, I think we talked about this before, but in order to do this practice, we need to do the preceding meditations, really spend a lot of time thinking about disadvantages of uh, self-centered thought, the advantages of cherishing others, think a lot about love and compassion. And then, many teachers say that we start this practice with ourselves that that's the best way to do it. So we start by taking from ourselves. Um, and as we get habituated to doing it just from ourself, then our mind gets stronger and we that, you know, we're getting more comfortable with the idea of taking it on from the suffering from other people. Because who wants more suffering? Nobody. But that's part of our overcoming the self-cherishing attitude, right? So... Imagining that, um, you know, our future self, 
are this afternoon's self. It doesn't have to be our dying self yet, but our self of this afternoon, for tomorrow morning, our self of the next day, our self of the next month, our self when we're 60, our self when we're 70, our self when we're 80, our self when we're dying, taking on bit by bit by bit the suffering or the dukkha from that future self. And so we see it as coming out of them as smoke or black light. Visualize yourself with these various kinds of sufferings and then generate compassion for yourself and imagine that you're taking on this suffering. Times when you will be sick, times when you will be in pain, times when you'll be depressed, times when you'll be grieving, times when you'll be hungry. (laughs) Just imagine all the suffering that we have, all that kind of dukkha, the dissatisfaction, the craving, all of it, and see it as this black smoke or black light that comes into us. And then as we take it in, as we breathe that in, use it to destroy this lump of self-centeredness that sits like a rock in the center of our chest, in our heart. And take your time. Really do this slowly. But take, imagine it, take it in, imagine it, take it in, imagine it taking in, and there's a point where that um, the compassion, really, that draws that black smoke in turns into a thunderbolt and explodes, completely blows up and annihilates that rock of self-centeredness in the heart. And it leaves this huge, expansive, open, completely generous, light, (laughs) huge space. And think, my self-centered thought is eradicated and the suffering of others is gone too. That's a powerful thought. And spend some time thinking now all these beings are free, including me. And rejoice. So then we expand to somebody else. Then you can start to think of somebody else. Then you can start to think of somebody else and do it just as slowly, taking this in, blowing it up. Blowing up the self-centered thought at the heart. And then take on the origins of the suffering. Take on the causes of the suffering. Take on the afflictions. Take on the negative karma. Take on the ignorance itself. Let it shatter the self-centered thought. And then thirdly, we take the unsatisfactoriness of the environment. Think of all the impure realms of the ten directions and then see that they're transformed into pure lands. And then we do the giving. So, taking on the suffering helps cultivate our compassion. We do the giving. Basically, we just... Reverse it. We're giving to ordinary beings. We're giving first to ourselves. 
then to ordinary beings, then to Arya beings, then we give to the environment. We're giving material help, we're giving our body, possessions, and virtue. So we give material help, we give Dharma teachings, we give Dharma realizations. We can give our body by transforming it into a wish-fulfilling jewel that just becomes whatever each person needs completely. We can give our body by um, multiplying ourselves a zillion, zillion times and seeing that going out and fulfilling the need of becoming what anybody ever needs. We can imagine dissolving our body into the four elements. We can also imagine creating any, when we're giving to our teachers, creating many, many bodies before them with multiple hands and multiple mouths who can make prostrations and offer service and things like that. So there's, you know, it's like using our imagination tremendously to give. And it creates such a feeling of expansiveness just to create beautiful things or, or to, to train our minds in even assessing what sentient beings might need. It's a great practice. So the point is that then through giving we generate love. So we generate this compassion, we take, we generate love by giving, compassion, love, compassion, love. We're focusing on sentient beings as we do the practice. And from that bodhicitta, the altruistic intention arises. So those are the steps. However long it takes, however many lifetimes it takes. But it's really addressing overcoming our habits in a very powerful way. And it's a whole lifetime practice, and it's something you can do on the cushion, and then off the cushion we look at um, transforming our problems into the path. The thought training verses that, you know, the eight verses of thought training, or the 37 practices, or those kinds of things. So there was something that um, I really wanted to share, it's good, it's such a short time, that uh, comes from a Sangha's Bodhisattva's grounds that are other factors that can help or hinder our success in developing bodhicitta. And I'd never seen these before, but I think they're very interesting. For causes, for conditions, and for forces, he defines, for developing bodhicitta. So the four causes, the first one is awakening to the Mahayana lineage. So, of course, a cause, it makes sense, a cause of developing bodhicitta is to awaken the mind aspiring to achieve bodhicitta. You have to awaken, like, even get that it exists and be, have that aspiration. Two, coming under the guidance of a Mahayana spiritual friend. So one of the causes of developing bodhicitta is having a teacher who teaches us, who teaches us the methods, who um, teaches us by example, 
who teaches us by pointing out when our self-centered thought is actually um, in play and we're not aware of it. It's one of the causes. The third cause is being influenced by love for sentient beings. So this is, has two types. Um, love that's an inspiration and influence in our lives. For example, having people like the Dalai Lama as um, role models and also feeling love ourselves for other sentient beings. Not attachment, but the genuine wish for them to be happy. So cultivating that is, a, is one of the causes for developing bodhicitta. And then the fourth one is having the forbearance or the patience to withstand great difficulties in the service of others. So all the things that we do to strengthen our mind becomes more of a cause for developing our bodhicitta. I think that's very cool. Then the four conditions are being ex- inspired by the deeds of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. So you know, we have to think about them in order to be inspired by them. Being inspi- Number two is being inspired through exposure to Mahayana teachings. So the more that we take the opportunity to receive teachings and really listen about bodhicitta, the more we're creating the conditions for ourselves to be able to develop it. We create a, der- a determination through fear of decline of the Mahayana teachings. So one good condition for developing bodhicitta is to really take the responsibility, is what it's saying, to carry on these these teachings by practicing themselves, ourselves. And then the fourth condition is being determined by seeing how rare the Mahayana teachings are in this age. So just appreciating more and more and more how precious they are and then being determined to enact them ourselves because they're so rare and to take advantage of the opportunity that we have. And then there are four forces. The personal force, the force of others, the causal force, and the force of applying oneself. So the personal force is the effort we need to make and the enthusiasm we need to generate. The force of others is how we're influenced. So that could be our Dharma friends, our teachers, Gandhi, you know, great altruistic role models, Mother Teresa, being influenced is a force. There's a causal force, which is the imprints from our past lives. And he comments, I guess you touch Sarah and comments, he says, Tibetans really believe in this. So we take teachings that are way over our heads and you know, we're all confident, we're confident in doing things within the practice that leaves imprints because we believe in this karmic force. So, you know, going to like Jeffrey's teachings where we don't really know what's going on necessarily, but boy, what imprints we're getting. They're incredible, right? Um, having some confidence that in that those forces are helping us to develop our bodhicitta. And then the fourth one is applying oneself which is constantly making ourselves familiar with the teachings, listening, reading, meditating, and practicing in daily life. So, I don't know, I thought these were really inspiring, actually, to causes, conditions, and the four forces. And then I want to leave us with this um, quote from um, Lama Sankapa and Lama Mchenma when he talks about these. 
When you have deeply understood that the Dharma, and especially the Mahayana, is on the verge of disappearing because of these degenerate times, you will understand how rare it is to develop the mind of enlightenment. Always rely on an excellent spiritual friend. Make every effort to practice the Dharma through studying, meditating, and so on, and sow the seeds of enlightenment in the depths of your heart. Not through the will of others, not through relying on others, not through blind habit, but through your own strength. This is the basis of all the Bodhisattva deeds. So he said, if it comes from your personal force or the causal forces, that's what really carries you. It's not so strong from the force of others. It's not even so strong from the force of applying oneself. But that personal force and the causal force are the cues that propel us. So, yeah, I thought that was really wonderful. So next week, Venerable Tarpa is scheduled to tell us, now that we've developed Bodhicitta, how to practice like a bodhisattva using the um, six far-reaching practices. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious body mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline but increase forevermore.